0: I'm delighted to be here today with Perry Marshall and Glenn Ruschling um, to talk about this terrific book, Evolution 2.0, that Perry wrote. And uh, just as a little intro, uh, Perry has a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Nebraska. He's a business consultant, entrepreneur, and the kind of inventor of the Evolution 2.0 $10 million prize for anyone who can discover a spontaneously arising communication system. And uh, I had another episode with Perry, which I will link to in the description section. And uh, Glenn is a regular here on The Meaning Code. He and I have done a series of six episodes on the physics of life and a number of others on information and the whole idea of code. So I thought it would be a good idea to get the two of these together. Glenn is a physicist, a mathematician and a computer engineer, and uh, I think a a communicator extraordinaire. So um, (laughs) to get started today, um, Glenn had given me some ideas of things that he had watched episodes of yours, Perry, and he's also read your book. So um, in one of the episodes that you did, Perry, with um, the Unbelievable podcast, there's a point at which you make the statement that there is origin of life versus origin of species. Mm -hmm. And uh, you didn't really get a chance to expand on that. And so I wondered if you'd like to expand on that here as a way to kind of springboard our conversation.
1: Well, I think uh, most scientists see those as being entirely different questions because the narrative that you're always uh, told is that, well, you know, once Darwinian evolution gets started, it, it, you know, it, it'll just go and go and go and everything gets better and better and better. But uh, that's well, it, your, your car sitting in your garage doesn't get better and your computer sitting on your desk doesn't get better. Um, and, and, you know, nothing in the non-living world gets better all by itself. But for some reason, living things do, and it's not because of mutation and selection. it's because living things have the ability to generate new information, which is um, I, I, I proved in a paper that I published a year and a half ago I proved that that's a cognitive process. And so that means the origin of information is uh, is a question that's necessary uh, to answer in, in order to even understand how we get species. And I don't I don't mean I don't mean understand that we get new species. I mean understand how. Uh, I, I think we've barely even gotten started in biology. In fact, I think biology as a field is still in its infancy. And the most fundamental questions are not not only not answered, but they're swept under the rug, and we pretend that we know the answers when we really don't. And so I think uh, origin of uh, species, origin of information, cognition, cancer, AI are all one question, which is where does information come from?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I sort of focused on that conference, the conversation you had between um, you and and uh, Meyer. Yeah, I thought that was a good, a lot of good places to start from, and uh, for, for two reasons. Being a Christian, I've always had to deal with the physics versus faith. Uh, it's an existential kind of crisis that you live with, and I felt, and also. I'm against, I'm uncomfortable with the intelligent design arguments, even as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things that sparked me <clears throat> when I started to get into you. I was trying to figure you out at first. And I thought, oh, wait a second. So he's a Christian, but he's also not comfortable either. And I thought I was a lone voice, so it was nice. To, that was probably one of the first things that, that hooked me in. Mm. <clears throat> and I think, when you're, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> when these intelligent design arguments come up, they focus on the the origins of species side, and information comes in, and they leave out the fact that something had to start it all to begin with, and that that is one of the the, the hard nuts to crack that the intelligent design argument doesn't really address, unless you believe that some outside agent just came in and magically mixed the chemicals up. And then as in the, you know, the, the Sistine chapel, you know, the, the touch and made it happen. So, um, and I think it, it helps focus on that your challenge is really an origin of life question. So how does it spark up to begin with, to start with? And, and um, one of the as an engineer, I, I had a chance to work in a number of startup uh, situations, and I worked for a contract engineering house. Um, actually, a couple for, in medical device technology for a while, so I'm I'm used to this situation where someone comes in with an idea, and it's they don't know what to do with it. Um, in the case of doctors, they might be a specialist. They're they're treating and they say, you know, it would be great if we just had something that would do this. And then they come into the you know, the, the company, the, the, the partners and the managers will have a little meeting with them. And then they kind of go back and forth. What can we do, what we can't? And then they put together a team of engineers, which is where I would come in. So if a medical device had to have a little embedded computer in it or something else, you know, sensors, uh, actuators, any kind of electromechanical, I would get drugged in on it. Then there'd be more meetings back and forth where you're talking to the client, trying to say, okay, what do you want? This is what we can do. And I always thought that moment when the first prototype shows up on the lab bench, and it's usually a big mess with Mm -hmm. wires going everywhere, and, and it just works, and you go, okay, we've got it. Now we can start step-by-step step going from there. So that's how I always see the, the split. There's that one question, where does that idea come from in the first place? And Karen, you touched on it with the Mozart example. The idea comes out of nothing. <laughs> where does yeah, it's the question of information has to become physical there's that one moment and then there's, once it's there, then there's sets of rules. That's why you go to engineering school or <clears throat> training. And then you know, once you have something, there are methods, there's techniques. Okay, we can modify this, we can add to that. And I used to kind of see that as your, your Swiss army knife, your five steps that you're saying, okay, once we have it, we've got all these tools now that we can keep working and modifying until we get the beta. And I think, <clears throat> When i was listening to steven meyer i think he's missing that aspect of what you're trying to say you don't need necessarily new information being fed in once you've got something started there are steps back and forth cut and paste you know swapping code hybridization am i getting you right in a sense
1: yeah so engineers have an experience of how the medical device comes into existence and that experience trumps anybody's theory
0: Mm
1: -hmm. about you know there's scientists tend to do analysis they don't design things
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and they often don't appreciate how much ingenuity and struggle and brainstorming and experimentation and affordances and, you know, all those things that happen. And, and so like, you're definitely speaking my language cause it sounds like we've both done a lot of almost identical things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and so, uh, so an engineer naturally looks at, uh, a cell or an organism as a piece of engineering. And I think Richard Dawkins validated that when he said, biology is the study of things that appear to be designed. <laughs> okay, there's, there's no getting around the implicit intentionality and the ingenuity of, of, of what there is. Well, so I went down the rabbit hole uh, of, of this whole topic 18 years ago. And uh, I was quite sympathetic with a lot of what the intelligent design guys were saying. And a lot of those people are engineers Mm -hmm. and they make a lot of valid uh, observations and they ask a lot of good questions and they do a lot of good scholarship and they don't get taken nearly as seriously as they deserve to. They, they kind of, they they get discriminated against very actively, but was always something that didn't quite sit right with me and it was the question of so how many supernatural interventions are we talking about here um are we talking about zero as in design is somehow in the fabric of the universe uh waiting to be expressed or is there like one divine intervention like the first cell and then You know, and then everything goes from there. Or is it a whole series of of speciation events like, well, God wasn't around most of the time, but then he showed up during the Cambrian explosion. Or is it like God is always like injecting information in there and and you could frame it all of those different ways and and all of those would be intelligent design. Um, and uh, one of the problems, I think, is that intelligent design is a very big tent. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are people who are six day young earth creationists who believe the world was made 6,000 years ago. Um, and they read all those books and that's what they read into it. And there are other people that there aren't even religious or maybe they're just a deist or something like that, but they believe that there is some kind of a very purposeful um, thing that's being expressed in biology. And when I looked at what does a scientist have to actually do to make a living, and what does a scientist have to do to discover something that's worthwhile and useful to humanity, including things useful for engineering, um, framing Intelligent design is a series of miracles doesn't help very much. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that it's inherently desirable to have as few miraculous events in your account of history as you can possibly get away with. Uh, because every, every insertion of a miraculous event is therefore something where there's no further human discovery that could be made. And and I just saw that as being counterproductive. And so way before I ever wrote the book, I kind of had to decide, well, how am I going to frame this? And how can I frame this so that any scientist who's trying to do his job is going to find this useful and constructive instead of obstructing the process of science?
2: Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. <coughs> well, oh, I was just—I
0: yeah. was just, just going to bring up a couple of quotes from your book, Perry, because I think they fit right here, and then then Glenn can respond too. That um, on page one ninety-seven, you say any theory of evolution is a theory of how information gets created. And then on the next page, you said the origin of information is a fundamental scientific question that deserves an answer. And I think that goes to your point here about if you if you posit too many miraculous events, then science stops because there's no point in pursuing it any further. But the the uh, materialists have done the same thing basically here because they don't they don't want to pursue this question because right. they don't know where it's going to lead. And so that also stops science going down that pathway right
1: yes Um, in fact i i came to feel that both sides were obstructing the process uh, process of science vigorously um i i i felt like well you know the random mutation selfish gene theory is just uh one um indecipherable miracle after another after another after another uh, that doesn't even follow the structure of a proper scientific theory, uh, and then the intelligent design, like the, the creationist, because intelligent design means a lot of things. But like the interventionist creationist version is a different series of miracles. So y- you have you have a secular miracle versus a theological miracle, neither of which is science. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and once I really understood that, I couldn't unsee it. It, it actually took me a while uh, to grasp what the problem was. Um, I was talking to my brother, you know, who figures very prominently in this whole thing from the very beginning. And once I started getting traction and I was making arguments successfully and defending myself in atheist forums, I'm I'm telling my brother about this and he goes, well, Perry, what do you expect scientists to do? Just throw up their hands and say, God did it. There you have it, Perry, you you answered the question. We're never going to figure this out. Is that what you want him to do? And it got me to realize I'm, I've am i learned how to make a God of the gaps argument very effectively, but what did it really buy me? Yeah.
2: So I'll, I'll keep going if I can get, keep my voice there. Um, one of the the notions about information coming in, somehow it has to become physical. And being a hardware designer guy, I work down at the you know physical, you know, lowercase P level. And if information is coming in and becoming physical, there has to be a mechanism somewhere in in the system where information is showing up and then getting read out and inserted and there has to be read writes. There, there has to be a whole chunk of hardware there to do it. And I, the intelligent design, like Stephen Meyer, they don't address that. If, if, they, if you're going to suggest that information is coming in, you also have to point to the mechanism at the physical layer where it's coming in from. And you know that's not there. I don't see that their arguments include that at all. So. But that's also the flip side, is if you want to know where it's coming in, if you can analyze the system, see where that's happening and then sort of trace the wire back and see where it's coming from. And it it might just be the wire goes up to this little antenna on top of your house and then you go, okay, now what? Mm -hmm. So.
0: Well, is that where you wanted to talk about this uh, paper that had to do with Maxwell's demon?
2: uh if, if you want to go there you know the the math is is the the elephant in the room um and i didn't know if you wanted to tackle that one or not
0: well is it's not something that you is it something you can talk about without actually bringing up the paper i mean can you talk about it peripherally because well, um i think the the point of it right is that you wanted to talk about the difference between functional information and formal information.
2: Right. And I know Harry yeah,
0: believes very much that, that language is very critical to this whole issue
2: of code. So, I yeah, know that's one thing I, I've noticed in your conversations. You use the word code, whereas most people will be talking information, just as a comparison. And I, I thought, okay, information is just. It's not It's not defined, at least in, in physics, there's at least three definitions mm-hmm. for what information is, and depending on which one you pick, you're going to end up with different mathematics. So it's always one of the fuzzy things that leaves me unsatisfied. And when you start using the word code, I think, okay, you understand that there's forms of information that has to take on, you know, and I say code is Information that's been instantiated into something physical, it can now be shared, processed, transmitted, exchanged, read, written. In the yes. sense, yeah, you, yeah, you can't go down to the feed store and get a 20 pound sack of information.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I learned this the hard way because I spent several years in discussion boards in the blogosphere debating people who didn't want (laughs) didn't even want to understand what i was saying and um and you had to nail down the terms with absolute crystal clarity so what a lot of people don't realize is that the origin of the 10 million dollar prize really started in the infidels discussion board in 2005, mm-hmm. I had given a talk called, if you can read this, I can prove God exists. And uh, I gave that talk at a, at a mega church and it, it was a recording on my website and tens of thousands of people heard that talk. And the argument was DNA is a code. All the other codes are designed, therefore DNA is designed. And uh, I got into an argument with somebody about this on email and uh, I was backing him into a corner and and then he he messages me back and he goes, "Hey, I posted a link to your talk uh, on this discussion board. Uh, you might want to go look at this and on, on the world's largest atheist discussion board, he said, "Hey, I've been talking to this guy, Perry. Here's his talk. Um, uh, be nice to him while you rip him to shreds." And I'm like, "Oh, great." Uh, this is going to be fun. Um, and so it was one of me and like 50 a, of them. And this went on for seven years. It became the world's, the the longest running, most viewed thread on the entire board. And every time there'd be a new post, it'd go right back up to the top. And um, and so if, if you were just talking about, if you said, uh, well, only living things or humans create information uh, they'd go, well, I'm looking at the sun right now and that's information or, or, you know, the, the, the ripples in the water in the, in the puddle are information. And the definitions were so vague that nobody could agree about what we were really talking about. And so I said, code is symbolic information exchanged between a sender and a receiver or an encoder and a decoder. And it's a digital communication system, just like in Claude Shannon's paper. And that's what that's what I mean by information. And that's code. And none of those exist outside of the living world. Show me an example. If you disagree, show me one. All you need is one. Show me a, a communication system that didn't come from a human or a living thing, and they never could find one. And I meticulously tweaked the language, the arguments, every single word of that specification has been slaved over. And it is the way it is for very precise reasons. And in fact, what's funny about that whole atheist discussion board is those people scrutinized my definitions more carefully than any scientist i've ever worked with since because they were their very identity was on the line as atheists mm-hmm. and and they were mad i mean they were they were spitting nails mad that some creationist had backed them into a corner and held them there for 7 years and they and they couldn't budge and Uh, And so I dialed that in precisely, I practiced this on hundreds and hundreds of conversation with hundreds and hundreds of people. And so it's been very, very carefully worded and defined. And I think it is the most, uh, it's the deepest question in science that can be precisely defined. I think there are other questions that are harder to define, like, well, where did the Big Bang come from? Or, or where did the fine-tuning of the universe come from? And th- there's questions like that, which are, you don't even know how to wrap your head around them. But we can very precisely define this. And so we, we need an answer. And the fact that we don't means that we are in an age of science that as soon as this is figured out, we will be in a new age. It, like mm-hmm. It'll be a completely new world once that's figured out.
2: Yeah, so I noticed, you know, my physics background, I, I saw what you did with the challenge. And there's it's pretty subtle. And I'm not sure a lot of people really see the depth there. That's, that's a physics question that will get you a Nobel Prize if you can answer it. And I, I suspect the patents that come out of it will be worth billions.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh- I I've had people say $10 million. Is not near enough for that? And I say, no, it's not. It's just a start. And that's why the person that discovers it will be partnered into the company and become a shareholder because this could be worth billions. I mean, this is bigger than the transistor. It's bigger than nuclear power. It's bigger than e equals MC squared. Um, and it it could be the secret of life. And for that matter, Um, It's probably really scary. Is is nuclear power scary? Absolutely. Um, But it's also can do a lot of good things. And so one of the things that I have had to realize is that this is the price of progress, is you take risks of discovering new things, and you have to face it boldly instead of being afraid of it.
2: Well, I think I can go off on a, a couple of different directions on this one. In the, in the origins of life, it gets into a, a, a funny direction that, well, just anecdotally, what I've noticed in the physics realm, the physicists who are atheists, not necessarily militant, are also against theories of everything. And things like strong emergence. And so there's more than just uh, a reluctance to go down the religion route. Uh, if, you, if you don't wanna accept the fact that there's a theory of everything of which all the, the numbers come out just right, all the constants just happen. And so I'm, you know, I can't prove it, but there's a similarity, there, there's a correlation there. And I've noticed a lot on the materialist side, I know you kind of touched on this already, that they believe that you can get humanity out of science, but they don't actually do it. I've yet to see someone who advocates for spontaneous evolution actually dive in. It's like, where did it start? What's the, you know, answer your question. If you are a materialist and you really believe that science can have the answers, I figured they would be diving all over your challenge question. And I don't see that at all. (laughs) And what I'm just throwing out to you because you might be the only person who could understand this, but it's like the science versus religion is actually a proxy battle for something deeper. There might be a question like, what does it mean to be human in the first place? Or I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. But have you ever thought about that? Because, you know.
1: Before I answer that, I would like you to elaborate more. I sense that you're really onto something here. But I want to make sure we really have this out on the table. Take another run at that.
2: Uh, well, on the math side, I, I noticed in your paper, you quote, biological systems are the only ones that uh, exhibit agency. Mm-hmm. And across the board, everyone seems to agree with that. But the paper, short paper I'm pointing to, it says, no, phys- agency is already in physics. Maxwell's demon has agency. And the senders and receivers in Shannon's theory are entities with agency. And most importantly, the observers, you know, Alice and Bob in quantum mechanics are entities with agency. It's already there, but no one wants to touch it in, in the realm of physics. It's, and I think that's, you know, I'm not asking you to accept it, but I'm just, throwing it out there, that seems to be the forbidden zone no one wants to cross over into and say, okay, what is agency? If you grant Maxwell's demon agency, then you're going to have to explain it using the laws of physics and and mathematics alone. And that gets into the question, everyone rejects, I think, almost across the board that mathematics is sufficient to address origins of life questions like intelligence, consciousness. And so if you the language of physics is mathematics. So if mathematics is not capable of expressing those ideas, then it seems like law of unintended consequences, you just shut the door on physics and chemistry as ever being a source of a solution. In fact, even adding rules to discoveries to physics, which will all be mathematical, will not be useful. And so now I I think if you reject math in such a categorical fashion, you are back to either an outside intelligent agent, which is not physical, poking the laws of physics at moments or something like panpsychism where you just fold it in as like a a secret sauce or, you know. And I think that's what people don't wanna go. They don't wanna buy the math. And I think they're afraid of it. That somehow if you buy the math, you're going to lose your humanity. And my suggestion is no. Um, Math is Alice in Wonderland. If you cross over that border, you'll end up in a place which is more bizarre than anything you can imagine. Possibilities you, and you can dream of.
1: Well, I think we're pretty close in the way we see things, if if I'm hearing you right. So let's talk about Maxwell's Demon. So just, just for the sake of people that might not be familiar Uh, Let let me explain how I was taught Maxwell's demon, and and I'm going to ask you to maybe flesh it out a little more. So Mm -hmm. uh, Maxwell's demon is uh, James Clerk Maxwell in the 1800s. He said, uh, "Okay, so, uh, you know, hot things tend to get cold and heat tends to spread out. Um, But what if. Uh, On my refrigerator, I had a tiny little door and I had a tiny little guy who opens the door. And every time a hot molecule inside the refrigerator comes comes nearby, he's going to open it and let it out. And every time a cold molecule from outside comes by, he's going to let it in. And just by opening that little door, the refrigerator will stay cold and the outside will stay hot. Um and uh and then somebody figured out, well, that's nice, but you still can't cheat because it takes a certain amount of energy to detect what those molecules are doing before they hit the refrigerator door. And and so and the the detection of the information still consumes energy. So there's still no free lunch. So you, you still can't violate the laws of thermodynamics, even if you have a magical little guy. Um, and so now people talk about Maxwell's demon all the time in physics and thermodynamics because it helps you conceptualize um, knowledge of the states of matter. And it reinforces that there's no getting around the laws of, of, of thermodynamics. Now, what I'd like you to clarify is that, um, that mostly when I hear people talking about Maxwell Demon, they're talking about a theoretical construct, but you seem to be going a step farther in saying that people acknowledge that that's, this actually does physically exist, But but I'm not sure if that's what you want to say or not.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, on, on the measurement by the photon, they've they've dealt with that. That's not an issue. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it turns out that whatever mechanism that you come up with to, to decipher what's coming and going, there are physics workarounds that kind of cancel those arguments. The Maxwell's Demon has been recast in a form called Zillard's engine. Have you seen that one? I could not for you. I've of, heard of it. Yeah, instead of a box of with a barrier and, and Avogadro's number of particles, it's a cylinder and a piston and one particle. Hmm. So it's it's in the you know the the vein of assume a spherical cow that physicists always do. You reduce it down to the simplest problem you can. So you have one molecule in a box with a piston. And so that reduces the whole problem down and you you find that you can you know, make equivalence of, of this with uh, wells and, and potential wells and stuff. There's a lot of games you can play that all the excuses you come up with to explain why Maxwell's demon should have problems, you can find workarounds. And so it was still sitting there. And Landauer, uh, Landauer, uh, Wolf Landauer came along, I'm sure you've heard of his name. Um, yeah. The Eraser Principle. And he recast Maxwell's Demon in, in terms of computation. And essentially said, every time the process cycles, the Zillard's engine cycles, You know, they, they let the piston expand and then you move the piston back. There's a point when you have to reset the system and erase memory. And when you erase a, me- a bit of memory, um, that changes the entropy of the universe. And that's where, you're, um, where it's going out. And so they solve the problem, they think in terms of entropy and that one bit So information now becomes physical. And that's where the phrase came from uh, out of Landauer's work. But it's really subtle and it's hard for me to sit down and explain. I have to sit and just quietly think through it when I work with it myself. So that's where I've started to see thermodynamics and computation, a choice being made and bits of memory stored and unstored. And there's uh, energy loss in just the process. Um, I think Landauer's first instantiation of it was noticing that if you have something like an AND gate, an OR gate, it's two inputs and one output. And but once you've done the logical operation, you lose the information of what was before. You had two bits of information, but the output is now one bit. So you've lost because you can't. It's, it's an irreversible process. And so you can start casting logical operations in terms of thermodynamics and irreversibility. And that's kind of the the entryway to the thermodynamics problem. So now I've lost my my, my train.
1: Well, Glenn, my interpretation of Maxwell's demon is that you still have to insert agency at the point where you decide where's the inside of the refrigerator and where's the outside of the refrigerator.
2: Right, and so you
1: what- still this, has to decide which way he wants the energy to go.
2: Right. And that's a choice. So, yeah, what this paper's pointing out, and I've noticed there's a lot of Maxwell's demons have been created experimentally. And so people say, well, see, we could do it, but they're all autonomous. They've all been engineered to work that way. And in when the ones I've looked at, what they, they reduce down to what you would call a relaxation oscillator. There's no intelligence going on if you pull back to the old electronics days. It's, a, it's an oscillator that just waits until a threshold is passed and then it does, and then a threshold and then passes. Because they'll have, they have transistors now that can switch one electron at a time and so they have you know, engineered systems that can just let one electron go through between two barriers. And, but none of those have agency. And what they're pointing out is the original um, encapsulation of the, Maxwell's demon was it was intelligent and it had free will to make choices. And you can't program something like that, that's the thesis of this short paper that really set me off thinking about it, said something like that has to learn and grow on its own. Mm-hmm. So the true Maxwell's demon, if you imagine it as it really is theoretically imagined originally, not as you create it experimentally, as autonomous uh, patterns on lithography someplace, it has to learn, it has to grow and accumulate its knowledge somehow. And so they took Maxwell's demon and applied population dynamics to it because you know this points out, well, the demon could just as equally undo everything as well as create it. So I think it, it, that's what's got me thinking. It's not an answer, but it, it's a, a way of looking at the problem that suggests that the demon if it exists physically, we'll have to be, have some way of learning and growing and acquiring code, know what to do by experience. And if you think about that, no one in physics wants to talk about, well, at least I haven't seen anyone try it, to explain how the demon would acquire its knowledge. So I see a, a, a echo of your problem there.
1: Well, I think if you look at a cell, even the simplest cell, in ter- terms of like what does it let in and what does it let out, it's behaving as a Maxwell's demon and it's in yeah. homeostasis. And there are ion channels, and is it going to let the ions in and out? And there are gap junctions, and if you extend uh, one way that I like to think about it is um, uh, one of my friends, John Torday uh, has written a lot of papers and he's talking, talk about, uh, I, th- I think he calls it a micelle, M I C E L L E as a just lipids in a spherical, a spherical ball of lipids. And um, and he, he thinks he thinks the first cell was. Um, uh, I don't want to butcher his theory, um, <laughs> so maybe people should look look it up and and, and read it from the source. But um, that you have an inside and an outside, and for it to maintain homeostasis, it has to decide what to let in and what to let out. So let's just extend it one further. What if the creation of a genetic code is the way that it chooses to keep a record of what's happened before and that the genetic code is a second step after a unit of agency already exists? Well, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's more consistent Mm -hmm. with my observations and understandings of how agency works and how information works, then it is a, a lucky RNA strand and it started replicating and then somehow or another it turned into a mm-hmm. cell. I found that story to have way too missing steps for me to find plausible. And it, and it never even explains where the code came from in the first place. It just assumes that if, if, if you had physical RNA strands information or in genetic code would just eventually emerge.
2: But, yeah, that's that can't happen. There has to be a set of a bootstrapping mechanism of some sort. You know, again, as a hardware guy, you, you present me with a problem and I say, okay, there's got to be steps. There's got to be a sequence of pieces of hardware that make it work. And if you go into there with that attitude, then you, you can't just say, well, that can't happen. You have to go, okay, there has to be something there. So what can it be? And, you know, maybe the Sherlock Holmes thing, you know, once you've eliminated all the the, the possible, the only thing left is the impossible or something, you know, mm-hmm. so, okay, you just take a leap of faith. So I don't know if it'll work, but I want to try it. So I think physics is where the concept of agency needs to start and whatever agency is has to begin there and there is no theory or comprehensive notion within physics itself, what agency is. And if you don't have it there, then you're not gonna get it in chemistry or anywhere else up the line either. So I think the analogy I've used, is. Agency is like in yeast. When you're baking bread, you got to put it in right at the beginning with your ingredients before you do anything else. You can't put it in halfway through the the bread-making process.
0: Well, so Glenn, when you're talking about agency, you're basically just talking about choice, right? Yes. And I I understand you may be a little bit reluctant to use that word when you're talking about something pre-life because... We had one very famous episode on here, Perry, where Glenn was speaking with another guy about physics and that guy was radically non agentic (laughs) in anything outside of life. And he just ripped Glenn up one side and down the other because of this idea that there could be such a thing as choice. But in your book, you make the statement that information capacity is a capacity for choice. Yes. Each bit is the freedom to select a one or a zero. Mm-hmm. And, and I wondered when you said that, are you also talking about non-living things when you say that?
1: Well, when, when you have information in the form of code, like we were talking about earlier, um, that information is a record of choices that have been made in the past. And so, if I have a digital thermometer and the thermometer is dumping, you know, it's taking a temperature every minute and putting it on a hard drive, you might say, well, there's no choices going on there. That's just the laws of physics. And that's true from one point of view, but there was still a choice as to that whether it's going to be recorded every minute or every 30 seconds or every hour, there's still a choice of all of the data formats in which, like how is, what format is the temperature reported in? What, what kind of bits or bytes did we use? What kind of hardware did we use? What kind of software did we use? Is it Celsius or Fahrenheit or Kelvin? There's a whole bunch of choices and there's no getting around them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in biology, we have choices in physics, physics has no conception of choices. They don't even exist in physics proper. And what Glenn is saying is, well, they must exist somewhere because biology works and biology is made out of physics. Um, and uh, and Glenn asks the question, well, if information is metaphysical, there must be some way in which it becomes physical. I've got an old friend, Bill Jenkins. He's an electrical engineer. The way he puts it is, what's God's transducer? <laughs> you know, what is what is the way in which some metaphysical abstract idea becomes um gets into a physical system, which I I think is a very fundamental question. It's like, well, where did Mozart get all his ideas from? You know, most creative people throughout history have believed and said and reported and described how things just come to them. Mm -hmm. J.K. Rowling was sitting on a stalled train and the whole idea of Harry Potter came to her as this big, giant, three-hour download. She was scribbling in her notebook as fast as she could write. I mean, this is the most, this is best-selling books in history. Yeah. So this is, this is a physicist has no idea what to do with it, but people in the arts have been talking about it for all of recorded history. And we've all experienced it. It's not like we don't know what this is
2: like. So the question is, can you distill it down, bottle it, and then apply it at the level of chemistry? Yes. And And uh, I, I think we should be able to, it should be solvable. It's probably right under our nose. Well, that's what I believe at this point in my life. But I just wanted to throw a footnote in or a little tangent. You know, Mozart might have heard his symphonies all at one time, but I think as an engineer, I'm more in the you know, Karen's. Um, I get a bit of an inspiration, and then I start working at it, and then gradually, stochastically, it tells me what it wants to be, and it, then it starts to take form. And I've told people that when I'm designing something in electronics or a PC board, it's like it almost tells you what it wants to be you start, you know, specking parts and, and, and everything. And, and it just, there's one way it wants to fit together. Yeah. And then that's when it comes together.
1: Yes. Musicians know this musicians know, you know, somebody writes a ballad and if, if they go get some other band members to help play it for the first time, if they say, let the song be what it wants to be. Everybody knows what they're talking about. And everybody knows that you don't put a big drum solo in the middle of the ballad, that that's gonna gonna mess it up. And and this iterative process that you're talking about, one of the subtleties of JK Rowling's story is, even though like the whole idea and the characters and everything kind of came all at once, Mm -hmm. it still took her seven years to like iron out all the kinks in the story, kind of like, um, almost like uh, you ever take a can, uh, a, a tinfoil wrapper on a chocolate bar, and after you started eating the chocolate, you take your finger or your pencil eraser and you start smoothing out the wrinkles in the wrapper because it's you know kind of fun to play with the tinfoil. I think that's what she had to do with this story. And in a sense it came all at once, but the details were not clear. She had a sense of what it needed to be, but it still took her years to do all the edits. And then now you have, again, this is is what the creative process seems to be for writers, engineers, musicians, physicists, hardware designers.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah so going continuing on that and back to your your shannon um your prize challenge the way i learned to distinguish um, between analog and digital over the years because usually people say analog is just continuous and digital is is discrete, but that's not necessarily true there are discrete analog circuits and Digital circuits, if you push them high enough in frequency, are completely analog. Hmm. Um, An analog circuit is one in which the intermediate variables are continuous functions of the input and output. A digital circuit is one in which the intermediate variables are symbolic Hmm. representations of the input and output variables. And so I think this, where I'm starting to see your challenge is that the sender and receiver, when you, you specify they have to be symbolic, it doesn't necessarily have to be digital, you know, because we could have different frequency shift, phase shift module. There's lots of way, mod, ways to modulate a signal to send symbolic information besides just one and zero. But it's the fact that it, the information being transmitted is symbolic. Means that the sender and receiver are agents have agency, because otherwise, the symbolic nature of the data wouldn't matter. And I think that's what that short paper is pointing out to is Maxwell's demon lives on symbolic information, not what he would call he call functional versus formal, which is just bits and bytes. Ones and zeros don't matter to an agent. It's to what the ones and zeros represent. Symbolically, so I'm thinking of, you, know, you know, what was it? Big blue walks can swim. Your sender says, ask questions. You know, four questions, and you get yes, no, yes, no, one zero one zero. The receiver gets one zero and says, well, has has to have the same list. The sender and the receiver have to have the same list of questions, so that when the symbolic data goes across, the re- symbolic receiver knows what they're getting. So then, they, then they, the conversion is the ones and zeros go back to yes, big, not blue, can walk, can't swim. That is what this paper refers to as formal information and that's what Landauer's principle applies to. And that's what agents live on is the functional information. Not the bits and bytes. And I think a lot of the discussions, thermodynamics, and I see it so often in the papers, get down to the ones and zeros and the thermodynamics of Shannon information just as a formal mathematical statement mm-hmm. and miss the fact that it's, it's agency, there's something going on. But then that the trick, I think is where does that information come from? Well, there must be something that the sender is looking at and the receiver is passing on to. So the fact that your example implies a much bigger uh, flow backwards, outward from that one point. So I think it's a much bigger um, holistic question than, than you just might see in the, the question. The fact that the sender is sending symbolic information means the sender has agency, which means it's doing something in reaction to its outside environment. And its outside environment might be other agents or just might be physics of falling rocks and landslides or something. So you can't, you know, as a physicist, I'm looking at this, yeah, you can't just do this in isolation because the sender and receiver are still interacting with something else outside and that outside has to be somehow included into the the metaphysics of the whole mess does it does that make sense
1: yes so that's why if you look at shannon's paper the encoder always has an input like there, there was something upstream and I think Shannon was very wise in not trying to have a philosophical discussion about what's upstream. Uh, he he limited it to just what could be mathematically analyzed. Now, when when I was in the Infidels Forum, one of the things that I realized was, I think I'm going to be in trouble if somebody tries to give me An analog system and tells me that it was encoded and decoded, but they haven't thought of that yet.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I was like, they're going to think of it sooner or later. And, and I I don't know what I'm going to do when they bring that up. But before they managed to bring it up, I realized, well, the reason that, what I'm looking for needs to be digital and not analog is because the genetic code is digital, not analog. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to stipulate this is digital. So I'm only dealing with the digital side of Shannon's theory instead of the analog side. And then, you know, because we're trying to solve life, we're not trying to solve like some other kind of a problem. And, and so, um, yeah, there there are very deep philosophical problems in this and they manifest themselves in a bunch of different but equivalent ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so Shannon's theory quantifies information but it is unable to deal with meaning at all. Exactly,
2: yeah.
1: Okay, well, that has an equivalent in mathematics which is that and, and uh, Turing in computation, which is that any, any mathematical function or any computer program is a turn the crank where all you have to do is turn the crank and, and answers will come out. I, I can have f of x and if you know, I run x from zero to infinity, I'll get y but what you can't compute is axioms in math in in mathematics axioms produce the formulas the formulas do not tell you the axioms and this is really mathematics 101 i mean it's the absolute foundation of mathematics but it turns out even in math stipulating a set of axioms Is an act of choice. It's an act of volition, which brings you once again back to Maxwell's demon. So Mm -hmm. there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to express this, but they're all the same problem. What is choice, and where does it come from? Um, Dennis Noble, my prize judge and longtime uh, friend and colleague, um, he points out that the the neo-Darwinists like Jerry Coyne. Um, are married to a form of determinism that's just like Calvinism from the religious um, people. Uh, yeah. that, that the genes, like Jerry Coyne believes that you and I just have this illusion that we're making choices, but our genes and the laws of physics are just blindly driving us forward, and that the, our sense of choice is the greatest illusion in history.
2: In other words, we're living in a matrix.
1: Right. Right, but but what's funny is none of these people actually act like this is true. Jerry acts like he writes a blog post and wants people to decide to believe it. Or well, that- yeah,
2: that's that's the challenge here. You in physics, there's a concept that they call free choice, and it, it's in quantum mechanics. You know, it's classically. Like, the observer has free choice to pick what experiment they're going to do or observation to do. And that's one of the undecided questions when you have that double slit or whatever experiment you wanna do or uh, Wheeler's um, delayed choice experiment, that's that's the classic one. If the the observer decides after the particle has gone through the slit whether it's going to measure the particle or, or, or wave. And the question is, does the observer have free choice to decide what experiment or observation we are gonna do? And that's, that's where it shows up. It, and um, the way out of it is one super determinism and that is of what observation to make. Has already been determined at the Big Bang. And then essentially, if you believe that, then you're living in the matrix. You know, it's, it's kind of a bistable state. You, you either pick one or the other.
1: And you're choosing a form of intelligent design when you do that. You know, Paul Davies um said. If if you believe that, um, that everything is baked in deterministically um, from the very beginning, then every single day that the world progresses further and somebody invents another airplane and every time there's another um, breakthrough or whatever, um, the the degree of fine tuning required for the universe to have reached that state just goes up and up and up and up, and which neither he nor I sees as an acceptable way of answering the problem. Well,
2: I would it's- say that's a very boring universe for God to make.
1: Well, well, yeah. And so, and so I, I just came to the conclusion that I, I had to accept the red pill that there is some kind of a gift in the universe that we call agency that um we are endowed with the ability to choose and that is not an illusion that is really real um and and that the universe is not predetermined from the word go um and that makes much more sense of what humans actually do and how they want to be treated like if if you If you start treating your coworkers like they don't really have choices and they're just automatons Mm -hmm. and you talk to them as though they are that they will get really irritated with you really fast. Well, you know, I guess, I guess you really couldn't have done any differently because, well, you came from a dysfunctional family. Like if you said something like that, that's an insult.
2: Most of us consider it an insult, but not in academia. (laughs) If I, if I
0: could throw something in here real quick, um, what you just said, Perry, is a question that Michael Levin addressed the other day. Well, I think it actually was in his conversation with John Verveke on my channel, and I was re-listening to it. Um, he was saying that while if the laws of physics imply that there is no choice, that, that everything is determined by by the past moment you know into this moment then that gets rid of um any sort of prosecution in any criminal activity right yes but but what what michael levin says solves the problem i think this is what he says solves the problem is time that in any given moment your choices are determined by past actions, past attitudes, past habits, past behaviors. But over a series of time, there you have some sort of opportunity to change, to transform, to, you know, to exercise or to get eat better or to make better moral choices or whatever, and that over time then so, so then when you're in a court of law and they say you did this and you're guilty and you say, well, but I, at that moment I couldn't have done anything else. The judge can say, yes, at that moment you couldn't have done anything else, but all the years leading up to it, mm-hmm. okay. But that seems to me like we're just still just kicking the can down the road backwards because there's any of those choices made in the past that affect the present are still choices.
1: So try this under size. If I have a bucket of rocks, time acts on the rocks. The rocks do not act on time. But if I have any kind of sentient being, sentient beings have an awareness of time and they act on time before it arrives. We think about the future. Okay, so, Let's let's give you a gruesome example. If, if somebody's having a really, really bad day and they get drunk, and then they leave the bar and they kill a pedestrian while they're drunk, they certainly didn't have time to swerve the car a hundred milliseconds before it hit the person. It was too late. But they did have time four hours ago to not get drunk. Okay, which is it's almost exactly what's being said here, but you have to acknowledge the difference between an agent who thinks about the future and a rock that as far as we know, does not think about the future Time acts on the rock, but an agent acts on time because an agent knows, like we all know that 2023 is coming before it comes. And be, and because agents can act on the future, we expect our fellow human beings to do that. And that's why we have courts and laws. Mm-hmm. Dennis Noble made the exact same argument um there's a video where he talks about he, he's talking to a bunch of oxford students and he says he says if you take the selfish gene theory enough seriously enough a person is going to go before a judge and say well yes i did kill those 12 people but my selfish genes pro- uh, programmed me to do that so i didn't have any choice therefore i shouldn't go to jail and he said no sane judge in any country i know of would accept that as an argument but if you really 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 accepted the selfish gene as being the truth then you would so what kind of society do we want are we really going to believe that
2: well we don't act as if we believe it no we don't but
1: there are there are people who want us to act that way If you go listen to an unbelievable Justin Brierley podcast uh, a few years ago, they had a debate between atheists who don't believe in free will and other people who do, and the atheists who didn't believe in free will thought that we should get rid of our penal system and be more forgiven. That's what they said. Go listen to it.
2: Yeah, or that sort just of begs the question: Where does
0: forgiveness come
2: from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. capital punishment. If you can't control yourself, then you're gone. That's the the, the alter alternate choice that mm-hmm. logically comes out of that as well.
1: Right. So. Right. So, um, so these are. It's. I just think it's fascinating how these very, very technical questions in biology take us directly to the most pervasive philosophical questions of all time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like they're no different. The Greeks were talking about this stuff 2,500 years ago.
2: So can I pull it back to choice? To yeah. Yes. Yeah, on, on the notion of, of free choice, because if you look at it, it's starting from the observer in quantum mechanics. What free choice, in one sense, one way, way to define it is that the choice is not uniquely determined by the past history of the universe. Another way to say it is that the choice is a, a point when there is multiple pathways into the future now Mm -hmm. which are all still consistent with the past history of the universe there's 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 a fork in the road now if you look at quantum mechanics in terms of like particle decay we can there'll be we can't predict how a particle might decay we can predict probabilities but we can't say which which choice into the future it's going to take but an agent in its most fundamental sense is an entity which is capable of picking by a set of rules or by some means a unique path into the future of the of the several that are available at, at some joint juncture in time and space. So um, I think in essence. If you want to push fi- choice back down to the level of physics, you have to. Acknowledge that there are multiple pathways into the future,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: multiple futures, which are all consistent with the past history of the universe up to that point. So you can't have perfect determinism and have choice. Choice breaks that. And you have the option now of picking one of those paths forward. I think in uh, the most crude sense, an agent is an entity that can exercise that aspect of the laws of, of of physics, the aspect of our universe. That's a toughie.
1: Well, I think it's very fascinating that in, it seems like you can define an agent as an entity that can be an observer in a double slit experiment. It, or the
2: observers are agents. Right. And since there is no theory of what an observer is in physics, um, that's the challenge.
1: Right. So I so think we do. this this is striking at that question.
2: Yep. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at, is that your, your prize challenge question is a very deep one. It goes all the way down to the fundamentals of physics.
1: Yes.
0: We have we have three episodes on the observer as well. So yeah,
2: there,
0: <laughs> we've talked about it very boring. deeply.
1: Well, so I'd like to bring something up. I, I have been wondering this and asking people from time to time about it. So has anybody done an experiment to show whether a dog can be an observer, a cat can be an observer, a cockroach can be an observer, a fish could be an observer or an algae can be an observer in a double sled experiment the way that a human can.
0: I even heard once that a particle can be an observer. Isn't that right, Glenn? Uh, Well, the detectors are the
2: observers. That's, that's the big question. Who is the observer? Because, you know, either it's a, it's a, it's a particle on a, on a photographic film, or it's a, Scintillator detector. There's some electronic or optic or chemical event record from that photon being measured. So that is that the observer, or is the observer? We asked. We talked about it in in one of the talks. Is, or is the observer, the computer program that records it on the hard drive, or is the observer the grad student that? opens up the Excel spreadsheet and looks at it for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's not answered. There is no answer to that in physics. (laughs) You you would think by now there would be.
1: Okay, so Glenn, I've got, uh, there's a video and a podcast that I did a few years ago with Sam Bart called Ways to Solve the Evolution 2.0 Prize. And we go through a whole list of rocks that I think people should turn over more that that into an answer. And I think this one right here is one of them. What is the observer? Can we come up with an experiment where the dog is the observer, where a mouse is the observer, where a paramecium is an observer, where a goldfish is an observer? How far down can we go? My hypothesis is that anything at a cell level and above can be an observer and that there is something fundamentally different in biology and that we could use that experiment to prove that cells are conscious. Now that's just my hypothesis, I don't know, but, but I, I think pursuing that question harder is a very, very productive line of inquiry.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, you just one of the problems I think is so much of the origins of life terminology vocabulary comes from biology, comes from us, philosophy, theology. But if these questions are going to become physics questions, they have to be reframed and given definitions which have a mathematical form that you can crunch. And that I think that's where that's the wall that everybody hits because. So my one of my suggestions, I'm trying, I'm not an apostle on this, but replace the word consciousness with the word agency. And then say, consciousness is how we experience this phenomena of agency. And so it can take us out of the, the theoretical development pathway. That seems so would, fine to me. Okay. That's one of the things I've noticed is that reluctance to recast definitions into formal mathematical statements. And then it's like, well, that's not what I mean by consciousness, or that's not what I mean by, and then you hit a wall. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, it's fine, but what I've noticed is people aren't content to just let you go off and do that. They almost have to fight you on it. And I think the thing that sparked me was Stuart Kaufman's paper Mm. yeah, where he's arguing that set theory can't be useful. And I'm thinking, well, my God, set theory is like the core of just about all of abstract mathematics. So that seemed to be a bit incredulous statement for him to make. But
1: Um, hang on. Uh, I want you to elaborate. I want to make sure I'm tracking with you. Can you explain that more?
2: Um, he was talking about set theory not being able to address questions. I think in, of that you would come up with in origins of life issues. That mm-hmm. set theory is not adequate to deal with the problem. Right. But as someone who's been trained mathematically, it's like no. Well, set theory is everywhere. Uh, wow. So you can't even do physics without set theory. So I thought. Okay, he, he but, he's.
1: I've talked to him about this.
2: I know. That's why one of the things. I listened to your podcast and then I I was looking at his paper, too.
1: Well, I I don't think there's anything wrong with set theory, but what, what he says in his paper is there is no mechanical process for making a list of all of the things that you could do with an engine block. Okay, so he said, what could you do with an engine block? Uh, you could make an engine out of it, but you could also use it as paperweight. You could also use it to crack open a coconut. Uh, and that's what an affordance is. Like a, a living thing will take an engine block and figure out an infinite number of crazy, interesting things that you could do with it. What he says about set theory is there is no ordered mechanical process for making the list of all of the things that you could do with the engine block. And, um, and that is equivalent to, uh, I think, to Girdle's incompleteness theorem, mm-hmm. where, um, where it is, it is not. Th- there, there are statements that are true about a system that the system does not have the ability to make. Right. And so it's really, it's really just an equivalent of the incompleteness problem or, or Turing's halting problem. There are things that you cannot know mathematically, therefore it requires choice. So all Stu is saying is, is I have to choose a set. There's not a mechanical process for the set choosing itself. Therefore, agency is real. That's what I understand Stu to be saying. Is there something I'm missing in that?
2: I'm not sure. Um, For some reason, it it rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm not sure where I can put my finger on exactly what um, I would object to. But uh, Because I'm working on theory of computation and game theory, it's all based on set theory. So, if he's not making a general statement that set theory is inadequate for studying consciousness, then he should—I feel that he should have qualified it more explicitly. That certain aspects, you know, I you know, I agree. You can't enumerate all of the things that exist in Plato's realm of the forms, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't see that as an argument against. A machine that might enumerate possibilities. Uh, oh, well, oh well, well, I see. I don't
1: think he's saying that you can't have a machine that enumerates possibilities, but really, he's saying the exact same thing that I'm saying in my paper, which is that biology cannot be reduced to mathematics. Now, I I didn't say it very explicitly, or I, I didn't belabor the point but
2: yeah
1: but 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 if you define science as reducing the universe to mathematical laws then science by that definition will never figure out biology or consciousness or agency or what it means to be human which goes back to something that you were talking about at the very beginning like i don't think this can be reduced to mathematics And that is like that is like a a Copernican shift in science Mm -hmm. for that to be accepted.
2: Okay, yeah, I I think where it doesn't work with me as. It's being trained as a physicist, I use mathematics all the time. And so if you say you can't bring it down to mathematics, it's kind of like, well, you can't. You know, my my tool set out in the garage can't design, you know, a car. But it's like, well, no, but I do, and I use those tools. Right. So in some sense, mathematics is the tool set. Right. And physics is like, you know, the mechanic. And I feel like, okay, when you're saying it's not reducible down to mathematics, are you saying that it's not reducible down to a tool set? But that's the tools that I use to do the work. Um,
1: we'll we'll try this on Versailles. You can't even reduce math. Oh, sorry. You can't even reduce mathematics to mathematics.
2: No, at some point you take it as 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 a given. Yeah, there's a certain level where you just have to make an assumption. Okay, this is what we have to work with. Right. We work out from there. Right. And. Uh, if you try and go, you know axioms. Where do axioms come from? Well, experience. Uh, they seem to work. Uh, that's what heuristic arguments are good for. That heuristic arguments are not logical arguments, but they are. There are ways that we take specifics and turn into general statements. Right. You know, I, I think that you people sometimes use the word induction. I think for that term, mm-hmm. but. We we make good guesses, and then we try and we formulate a rule based on experience. And then that becomes an axiom. But that axiom is always subject to revision down the road as we experiment and try it out.
1: Well, so when, when we do heuristics, what we're really doing is we're stringing a bunch of non sequiturs together that make adequate sense based on our experience and we usually get an outcome that is good enough and it's not perfect and it's not formalized and it's not Mm -hmm. it it, 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 it's not any of those mathematical ideals but every single creature on earth that's still alive and functioning is managing to do it and so i think that that, that means that inductive reasoning is a much greater skill set than deductive reasoning and calculation mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, yeah. it's not it doesn't invalidate mathematics but it just says there it has a limited role it's not an ultimate reality
2: okay I'll just, I'll just let it go I'm struggling on this one. Well, it's well,
0: not, can, let me throw something in here um, that I was thinking about in this uh, whole idea about scientific materialism's insistence upon bifurcating nature into primary quantitative and secondary qualitative characteristics, mm. which I think is a quote from Goethe, or it might be a quote from Wolfgang Smith. I'm not sure. I've got a bunch of notes here. But I was thinking about that. Well, maybe there's no need to bifurcate, between the primary quantitative and secondary qualitative characteristics, because maybe there is a way that quantitative and and qualitative inform each other through proportional relationships. That's the way I think about it in art, for sure, that they inform each other. But I know you have a hard stop at. 9.30 at right, my um, time, Perry. So I'm, I need we need to bail out at this point. But I think there's much more to be talked about. So if you would be interested in coming back again, we'd love well, to have you.
2: I would.
1: And I want to compliment you, Glenn, because you've reached into the depth of these questions a lot deeper than most people that I talk to. Um, most people, they'll appreciate this from maybe one particular discipline that they're in. But they don't usually see how how many things get pulled into this question and how deep this really is. And mm-hmm. like these are the real questions. Like, I think you could take any one of five or six rabbit trails that we were on today, and you could go very deep. Like that that whole question of so like the buck stops at the real observer. Where is the real observer in physics? That is a that is a billion-dollar question right there.
2: It's a Nobel and, Prize question, if you can answer it.
1: Absolutely. And and I think it, it it's, I would add that to the, like, if I was going to do a part two of ways to solve the evolution prize, I would go right there. In fact, I, I think I did refer to it, but I didn't go very far mm-hmm. into it. But th- these are great questions, and, and I, I want to applaud you because as both a physicist and a product designer and somebody who's you know designing devices that have inputs and outputs and programs and you know medical equipment and all of that, um, you have an appreciation for this stuff that not a lot of people have. So this has been a great conversation.
2: Yes, it's been actually amazing for me. So, and a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, I've really never talked to anybody else before, except for Karen.
1: All right. It's been a
2: wonderful conversation.
0: I'm just an innocent observer.
1: But you're an observer, and (laughs) And we know that.
0: Observer, yes.
1: You're an agent.
0: Thank you both so much, and uh, I hope we can continue the conversation.
1: Let's do that. You
0: have a great day. Okay. Okay. Take care. Get it. Bye bye.
1: Bye.